Well, if you brought your Bibles, you can turn them to John in chapter 11. Our passage this morning for our sermon is John 11, verses 28 through 44. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there, and if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the pew back in front of you. John chapter 11, verse 28 through 44. Hear then, church, the word of the Lord. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And this is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise your name for you are God alone. We give thanks to you, Lord, because every good gift that we have received has come from your hand. For what do we have that we did not receive from you? And if it has come from you, then we have no room to boast, but only to give thanks. Remind us, Lord, of your kindness to us that we may be a people content and thankful in all circumstances, whether rich or poor, healthy or sick. For you are our portion and our shield and our helper and strength and it is in you that we find abundant life. Now, Lord, we pray for those who are not with us today. We pray for the members of this church who are at home sick, that you would bring healing to their bodies. For those men who are hunting this weekend, Lord, we ask for your protection and your provision. We think of Steve and, and Dave and Jack and John, and we pray that you would, in your grace, provide for them uh, some deer and protection as well. Lord, we pray as well for the Creech family as they travel this weekend. We um, pray for them as uh, they are preparing to return back to Senegal soon. May the rest of their time with us and with their family be sweet and filled with the enjoyment of Christian fellowship. And we thank you for the work that you've given to them. We ask that you would go before them and prepare their way. We ask as well, Lord, for your grace to use us for your kingdom right here in Waukesha. We pray for the many people who live here and need you and need your grace to come into their lives and rescue them from the lies of the devil and from the destruction of sin. 
Help us to be faithful witnesses of the truth of the gospel, Lord, in our jobs, in our neighborhoods. Lord, we think this morning, especially of those who are impacted by the unjust slaughter of so many at the Christmas parade last year, and as the trial for Daryl Brooks has come to an end this week or is coming to an end, we pray that this community will find its hope not in a just punishment of a man for his crimes, but ultimately in a just Savior who calls all men everywhere to repent and to turn to him. If there was any doubt, Lord, that right and wrong are more than just dynamics of personal preference, then let there be no more doubt. If there was any doubt that wrong, that sin has awful consequences, let there be no more doubt. If there was any doubt that there is such a thing as guilt and justice and truth, let there be no more doubt. And if there was any doubt that those who are guilty must stand before the bar and receive just penalty for their lawlessness, let there be no more doubt. And let it all drive men to a recognition of their own guilt and the bar that is to come and your judgment and the one and only Savior who stood condemned in the place of sinners so that they might hurl themselves at his feet, repenting and bowing before him and proclaiming him to be Lord. Now, Father, as we turn to your word, we ask that you would cause it to be alive and active in our thoughts and in our lives. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, we ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, for the last several weeks, we've been going through John chapter 11, and that's why I didn't read the whole chapter, because we've been reading the whole chapter the last couple weeks. And uh, we come to it again, and it's the, the story of Jesus raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. John has been intent for the whole time in his gospel. We've been going through his gospel for oh, quite some time now, and, and we've noticed that John is intent on recording these signs that Jesus performed which basically show him to be who he claimed to be. All of these miracles John calls signs because they're signs that point to Jesus being the Messiah and the Son of God. And and so actually, aside from the resurrection of Christ, John presents this miracle as the climactic sign of Jesus. It's the last one that John records before Christ's crucifixion. And as we'll see, it's actually the sign that puts the religious leaders over the edge and convinces them that something has to be done about this Jesus guy. And they make plans, we read in the end of chapter 11, they make plans at that point to put Jesus to death because word has gone out now that Jesus has has, um, risen this man from the grave, that that he rose Lazarus up. And so their concerns are are raised even more. And this is kind of a turning point in John where it's the last sign that John records Jesus performing before his crucifixion. Now, before we get to all that, we still have some more to cover in our story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Last week, we focused on Jesus' conversation with Martha. So when Jesus comes to Bethany, he knows that Lazarus is dead. He's told his disciples he's glad on their behalf that he wasn't there because he wants their faith to grow and he knows that he's going to raise Lazarus up when he gets there. And so before he even gets to Mary and Martha's house as he's approaching Bethany, Martha comes out to meet him and we looked last week at Jesus' interaction with Martha, that conversation that he has. You remember when he says, your brother will rise again. She says to him, Lord, if you'd been here, 
my brother wouldn't have died. And then he says, your brother will rise again. And then it goes into his, um, his declaration of being the, the, the um, resurrection and the life. And he says to Martha, do you believe? And so he puts it to Martha, do you believe? Will you trust me right now, Martha? Do you really believe, not just in a resurrection that's afar off, that's something that is way separated from you right now, but that I'm the resurrection, that I have the power of resurrection, I'm the source of resurrection, and I can resurrect your, your, your brother's body even now. So we looked at that last week, and then... This morning, what I want to look at is Jesus' conversation with Mary, or we should say Jesus' interaction with Mary, because there's not quite the conversation with Mary like there was with Martha. And this is one of the things that we're going to look at. When when Mary comes to, to meet Jesus, we're told that he's deeply moved in his spirit, he's greatly troubled, and he asks Mary one simple question. That question was, where did you lay the body? And then he He weeps. So that's what our focus is going to be on today. What do we gain from knowing that Jesus felt what he did, that he was deeply moved in his spirit, and that he was even moved to tears in this moment? What does this show us about him? Why does it matter? And finally, should we imagine that he still weeps with us today? So um, our first observation is this. When we we see Jesus come out, or I should say when we see Martha come out to meet Jesus, And he weeps with Mary, sorry, not Martha, Mary, and he weeps with her. One of the things that we learn about Jesus and we see in Jesus, first, very simply, is his compassion. So let's go to verse 32. Look at this. He says, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled and said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Now the thought occurred to me this week of the similarities between Mary and Martha before the Lord. They had both, obviously they were sisters. They had both obviously just lost their brother. It had been four days since he died, so it was very recent. And they both go out to meet Jesus. So both of them go out to meet him as he's coming in. Martha first and then Mary, but each of them go to Jesus and they have this special encounter with Jesus. And they both, did you notice that they both say exactly the same thing when they reach him? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You know, it's almost like they planned it. Like, what are we gonna say when Jesus gets here? What are we going to say? And Martha says, oh, I'm going to say, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Mary goes, ooh, that's good. I'm going to say that too. That'll get him, that'll get him real good. No, well, really, more, more likely than that, what actually happened was, this is what they had both, they've both been thinking the whole time. Both Mary and Martha knew Jesus. They were friends with him. They knew of his power. They knew that if he, if he had gotten there before Lazarus had died, he would have been able to heal Lazarus. They knew he had great power. And so most likely, they were just thinking it, and when both of them get to Jesus, out comes the thing that has been on their minds and hearts for the last four days. Have you ever had that where you've been thinking about something and ruminating on it, and finally something happens and it just all comes out? Well, that's probably what happened with both Mary and Martha. But you see all these similarities between them. They, they both initiate the conversation. They both say the same thing. They both are in the same place. They just lost their brother. And yet, and this is what occurred to me, yet 
Jesus doesn't respond to them in the same, in the same way, does he? He actually interacts with Mary in a vastly different way than he interacts with Martha. With Martha, he says, your brother will rise again, which leads to him then revealing to Martha that he is the resurrection and the life. He's speaking this wonderful truth to her that reveals who he is. But with Mary, he sees her weeping and he's deeply moved and he's greatly troubled. And after asking about the location of Lazarus' body, where did you lay him? He joins Mary in weeping. And other than that, he really doesn't say much to her at all. Now, without knowing what was in our Lord's heart and mind as he met with these sisters, one thing we can note is that when Mary comes to him and she's weeping, Jesus doesn't just stick to the script. It's not like he just has a script that he's going to stick to. This is what I say to people who just lost their brother. I'm going to stick to the script. No, he's the good shepherd. You remember we read back in John chapter 10. He's the good shepherd. And what does the good shepherd do? He knows his sheep. He actually knows them by name. He knows everything about them and he cares for them. He gives them eternal life and he protects them and he watches over them and he cares for them. So it shouldn't surprise us. The way that Jesus interacts with Mary is is vastly different than the way he interacts with Martha. But in both cases, he acts and he speaks out of compassion and love. In both cases. In love, he spoke the truth to Martha, assuring her that he had the power of the resurrection. He was the resurrection and the life. And in love, he wept with Mary in sorrow with her over the sting of death. Now, Jesus knew, I said this a couple weeks ago, it's not like Jesus didn't know what he was going to do. He knew that he would raise Lazarus up and that all of them would be reunited together again with Lazarus, but he was still moved to great sadness as he saw the impact of sin and death on those he loved, and that's why he wept. This, you know, here, here he's, he's looking at this situation, he's in this situation, and this is what sin has done to his father's good creation. It is brought, it's brought destruction, it's brought death, and here he is standing with Mary, asking um, her where her dead b- brother's body has been laid, and then seeing her grieve, seeing her in tears, and he feels the weight of, of the pain of death, and he cries with her. So, that's the first one. First, we see the compassion of our Lord. Some of the Jews said, John records for us, see how he loved him. And they were actually right in saying that he surely he did love Lazarus and Mary and Martha, whom he saw in this helpless and sorrowful state because of death, the enemy that he had actually come to destroy. And so he weeps with them. Now there's more because beyond just a display of compassion, this event was a display of Christ's humanity. It was, and these are directly tied together. They're, they're, they're closely tied together. They're not the same thing. But very importantly, we need to understand that this was a display of Christ's humanity. Now, let me tell you why that's important. We see in him weeping his humanity. Isaiah had long before prophesied of the Messiah in Isaiah 53. And he calls, Isaiah prophesies that the Messiah would be a man of sorrows who he says was acquainted with grief. He says of him that surely he has borne our griefs and carry our sorrows. And so this is what we're finding in the New Testament as we read of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, that he was that man that Isaiah prophesied about. He was the man who was acquainted with grief. 
Now, think about that for a little bit. Some of you might be saying, well, that doesn't sound so special. What's so great about him being a man of, of sorrow or him being acquainted with grief? You might think, well, isn't every man to some extent acquainted with grief? Right? And is it really unique that a man would in some sense carry the sorrow of others? So what's, what's the deal here? What, what's so important about this? Well, you see, the reason why this is so amazing is that the reason why Je Jesus as the man of sorrows is so amazing and that he carried our sorrows is so amazing is because Jesus is the incarnate son of God. Now, you, we have to remember John's introduction in his gospel. How did he start out his gospel? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then John says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who is John talking about there? He's talking about the eternal son of God. In the beginning was the son. The son was with God and the son was God. He was one with God. And the son became flesh. He took on flesh and he dwelt among us. So get this. The eternal son took on a human nature, including a human body and a human mind with human emotions. And here's the mystery of it all. That the immortal took on mortality. The impassable became passable. The son, though, though he was equal with God, in, in God the Father in glory and majesty, and the spirit, he willingly laid aside his impassibility. That is his immunity to suffering. When he humbled himself and took the form of a servant. If the son didn't become a man, if, if the eternal son didn't become a man, he could not have suffered. He could not have felt pain. He could have not have felt sorrow. You know, theologians throughout church history have said that God is impassable. This is a theological term that they use. And what they mean by that is that God cannot be wounded emotionally or physically. He cannot suffer. God cannot suffer pain. He is God. He, he has no body like men. And therefore, he does not experience passions or emotions as man does, nor does he or can he experience physical pain or suffering in any way. If you, if you think of God in heaven as suffering in any way, you're not thinking of the biblical God. God does not suffer like man. But here's the mystery of it all. When, when God the Son took on flesh... He became a man like his brothers in every respect, the scripture says, so that he might become the man of sorrows who would suffer as a true man and become our great and merciful high priest. This is why it's so amazing that the eternal son of God, the immortal, took on mortality. The impassable became passable. The one who, who could not suffer humbled himself and took the form of a servant and became a man and put himself in the place of men so that he experienced the sufferings of men. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people for because he himself has suffered when tempted or tested... He is able to help those who are being tempted. So what these verses tell us is that it was necessary that the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, become like us. That he himself go through suffering and be tested. 
He experienced grief and pain as a man, as men do, as women do, in order that he might become our merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make satisfaction for our sins. And so when Mary went out to meet Jesus and Jesus was grieved deeply in his spirit, he was deeply troubled and he wept, what was happening? This was an exercise of his true humanity. The second person of the Godhead was standing there as a man. The one who created the universe was standing there as a man with tears in his eyes, real tears from real tear ducts in his eyes as he felt the weight of grief and sorrow in his soul. And it had to be this way, the writer of Hebrews says, because he, he had to qualify He had to go through this to qualify to be our merciful and faithful high priest. He had to suffer. He had to be vulnerable to suffering and actually suffer as a man to become our great high priest who would represent us before the Father and stand in our place. Now, his suffering certainly comes to a point It comes to to a head on the cross. This is where, on the cross, is where he makes atonement for our sins. He dies for our sins. But during his whole earthly life, Christ lived as a man who suffered as men do. He was tempted and tested, just like we are, yet without sin. And all of that was necessary for him to become our high priest, who is now able to sympathize with our weakness, He is our mediator who reconciles us to God and he intercedes on our behalf. Listen to Hebrews chapter four. For we, starting in verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tested as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So Christ, deeply moved at the tomb of Lazarus, him weeping with Mary, all of this assures us that our high priest can sympathize with our weakness. He knows what it's like to live in a sin-cursed world, in a frail and a, a, a finite human body, right? He was tested as we are, yet without sin. He grieved and he felt pain, yet without sin. And because of that, that, the writer of Hebrews says, we can draw near to the throne of grace in confidence that he is able to help us in our time of need. In our time of testing or our time of trial, Jesus is our high priest who has gone before us to secure our salvation. And now he leads us and sustains us even in our times of sorrow and our times of pain. And so when we see Jesus weeping with Mary, we're reminded of this. That the person of Christ was not simply a divine mind driving this human body, right? Divine mind, just human body. No human emotions, no human soul, no human feeling. No, Jesus felt the sorrow that we feel. He suffered as we do, and ultimately he suffered in our place for our sins. And therefore, he's a savior who knows our weakness. He's a savior who was tested and tempted and tried as we are, and yet without sin. So we can look to him for mercy and grace to help us in our struggle with sin and to hold us in times of sorrow and suffering as we go through the things that he went through. Which brings us to a practical application of this text that is very easily missed. What else does it mean that Jesus wept? Well, 
For one, it shows us his compassion. For two, it shows us his humanity. But here's another one. Here's the third one. It shows us Jesus crying as an example to us. He's an example to us. Jesus grieves over the death of Lazarus and the sorrow of Lazarus' death brought upon Martha and Mary and he's grieving there. And if it was right for Jesus to weep with Mary over the death of Lazarus, even when he knew that he was gonna raise Lazarus up in a few short, short minutes, we could say, maybe a few short hours, we don't know how long it was, but then we should consider it right and appropriate when we grieve and we weep in the face of death. In a way, we could say Jesus sanctifies grieving and weeping when we lose a loved one to death. Now, certainly there are times when we mourn things we ought not to mourn. There's such a thing as wallowing in, in, in a sorrow that is nothing more than self-pity. But our Lord shows us here, as, his, as, as an example to us, he shows us that there is a time and a place for mourning. There is a time and a place for grieving. Tears are not sinful in and of themselves. They're not necessarily a result of a lack of faith or a sign of doubting God's promises. Jesus wept and Jesus never sinned. And he was not sinning when he wept. Sometimes our tears are just expressions of sorrow over the, of, of a painful loss, right? Maybe the loss of a friendship. Or sometimes they're an expression of our sorrow because of our loneliness. Sometimes they're an expression of sorrow over sin and its effect upon us. Sometimes we weep because of frustration with a constant struggle that we have. Or maybe a physical weakness or an illness. Or maybe they're tears of grief over the death of a loved one. And certainly here we have the example of Jesus who was grieved by the death of Lazarus and its impact on the ones that he loved. And so even though we know that in the end the Lord will raise us up and raise up all who belong to him and death will finally be defeated, in the here and now, when, we, when death happens to a family member, when one of our friends dies, when one of our loved ones dies, we, in the here and now, we can say that is an intrusion into God's good creation. And it's painful because it causes a separation between us and the people who die. A separation that actually seems like it's going to be everlasting. It seems insurmountable, right? So in the face of death, we grieve. And if, if you ever lo have lost a loved one or someone who's very close to you, then you know that pain. You've experienced that. You've experienced crying until it feels like you just physically can't make any more tears, right? And this is nothing new, actually. If you look back to the Old Testament, this is an interesting study. Look back at the Old Testament and see how they grieved when people died in the Old Testament. Did they just, did they just have, did, they, did their funerals, did they, did they just call them celebrations of life? Oh, this isn't a funeral, it's just a celebration of life. All we're gonna do is be happy here. Did they do that in the Old Testament? No, actually, they didn't. What you, look, what you find when you look at the Old Testament and God's people is examples of them grieving when their loved ones died. You know, you have Abraham, and when he buried Sarah, his wife, he wept, it says. He wept, of course he did. It was his wife, man. What do you expect? The people of Israel, you know what's interesting? At the end of Deuteronomy, when Moses dies, it says the people of Israel wept for 30 days. That's how much they loved their leader. He was special to them, and death had separated them from him. And David's another example. When he found out 
that his child was his first child with Bathsheba was going to die, he wept. And when he heard the news of Jonathan, that Jonathan had died in battle, what did he do? He wept. And now what we have in the New Testament is standing above them all for us as examples is Jesus who wept with Mary for the loss of her brother, Lazarus. Now, there have been some in the church who've wondered if it's okay for Christians to grieve when a family member or friend dies. You know, should we only be thankful? Maybe they say, well, let's just be thankful for the life that God had gave and joyful that we'll see them again one day. Now, some, some have used 1 Thessalonians 4.13 for this. Paul's speaking to the Thessalonians about the hope of Christ's return when he will raise the dead. And, and Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, but we want... But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And then he goes on to talk about Christ's return and the resurrection and that they will see them again, that they will be raised up again to new life when Christ returns. Now, this is an important piece to understanding. Jesus wept, and therefore we could say he sanctified weeping. In other words, weeping isn't taboo. But Paul says here that we're not to grieve as those who have no hope. Now, that's not that Christians shouldn't grieve. What Paul is saying is not, Christians, you're Christians. You have the hope of the resurrection, so you can't grieve. No, he's saying, we don't grieve the loss of a loved one. We don't grieve as if we don't have hope, like the ones who grieve who don't have hope. Now, because of Christ, we do have the sure hope that those who belong to him will be raised again. So though death has separated us now, we will one day be reunited to them when Christ returns. And having that hope doesn't mean we don't grieve their, their absence from us in death right now, but it impacts the way we grieve, doesn't it? We still grieve, but because we have the hope of the resurrection, that grief doesn't lead to despair. Because we have the hope of resurrection, we grieve, but we grieve in hope, right? We grieve in faith, and we grieve in hope of Christ and his resurrection and ours that is to come. So friends, I hope that when you read this story of Jesus and you see him weeping there with Mary, you find comfort in that. You know, if you've lost a friend, if you've lost a, a mother or a father, or maybe you've lost a child, you know, the deep pain of that loss. Well, look here in this, look in John 11, you have good company. Our Lord and Savior was no stoic, non-feeling man who never felt the sorrows of man. Our Lord didn't command us no more weeping. No, he wept. He knows our weakness and he knows our sorrows and he can sympathize with our weakness because he was there and he went through it for our sake. He knows the pain of loss and he knows it and he went through it for our sake. Which brings us to our final question. And we're going to wrap up with this last one. It, this, this may have been on your mind. It may have been on your mind because I said it at the very beginning. Maybe you weren't paying attention. You didn't know that I put it in your mind secretly without you knowing it. If Christ wept with Mary at the tomb of Lazarus, and if the Hebrews the writer of Hebrews speaks of him as our sympathetic high priest, could we not say then that Christ weeps with those who weep today. You know, that would be a great, you know, it, it would be a great ending to my sermon. My last point being, Christ wept with Mary and Christ weeps with you when you weep. 
And that sounds good, doesn't it? It sounds good, but I want to make the case that it actually isn't true, and it doesn't actually help us like we think, that we might think it does. So you say, wait a second, Chuck. You're ruining this for me. I liked it all the way up to this point. Now you're telling me that Jesus doesn't weep with me in heaven. Why do you say that? On what basis should we not think of Christ currently weeping with those who weep? Well, first of all, and most importantly, if you look at the passages we read in Hebrews, all of them speak of Christ's suffering and being tested in the past tense. For him to be our high priest and one who can sympathize with our weakness, he needed to become like us in every way, be tested as we are, yet without sin. And that is what he did. And the point of Hebrews is to say his work of suffering is completed. He no longer needs to suffer for us in any way. His suffering ended on the cross when he said on the cross, it is finished. The work is done. And then what happened after he, he suffered on the cross? He was raised up in an incorruptible and glorified body that was no longer subject to pain. It was no longer subject to suffering. It was no longer subject to sorrow. So when, Christ, when, when the scriptures speak of Christ's sorrow, when, when the scriptures speak of his pain, when it speaks of his suffering, it is all in reference to his earthly work during his state of humiliation on this earth, which was completed on the cross. You won't actually find any reference to Jesus suffering or sorrowful in his exalted state where he sits enthroned at the right hand of the Father. You won't find that in the New Testament because the New Testament never says anything about Jesus currently suffering or sorrowful. Now, I realize that's difficult for us today because we associate sympathy with feeling sorry for someone. Or actually, a better way to put it is we associate sympathy um, with feeling sorrowful with them. But that isn't actually what Hebrews teaches us about Christ. It isn't, and the Hebrew, Hebrews doesn't teach us, Jesus is our sympathetic high priest because he weeps with us. That's not what it says. Rather, what, the Hebrew, what Hebrews teaches us is because Jesus wept, because Jesus suffered in the past tense, we can be assured right now that Jesus can sympathize with our weakness. He knows what we're going through because he went through it. And to the point, he can help us in our time of need. Now that's the crux of the matter. And that's what we ultimately need. What we need is a savior who, who knows our weakness, who suffered for us, and who can help us in our suffering and pain, and who will in the end deliver us out of it. That's what we ultimately need. We don't need Jesus to feel in heaven what we feel on earth. He came to earth and he already felt what we feel. Now what we need from him is to come to our aid as one who knows our struggle and can intercede for us on our behalf and can give us the strength to persevere in faith no matter what trials we face on this earth. Now listen, I'm going to read these passages in Hebrews again. I, I know we already read them, but listen very carefully to the thrust of this. Listen to the point. In both places... Jesus suffered, and the point is, because he suffered, he knows he's our sympathetic high priest, and he helps us. Not he feels right now, but he knows he went through it, 
And he went through it in order to help us, to become a high priest, to intercede for us and help us. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, when tested, he is able to do what? Not to suffer now, but to help those who are being tempted. He gives us the strength and the help we need now. Now look at chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted or tested as we are, yet without sin. And so then what? Then let us, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Why are we drawing near to the throne of grace? So that Jesus might feel something right now? No. So that he might give us help in our time of need, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can go to him confident that he knows, he went through it, and that he will supply the grace that we need in order to go through our time of testing or trial or sorrow. Pastor and author Kevin DeYoung says it well. He says, our comfort is not that Christ is still bound up in our sorrow, but that because he suffered for our sake, we can be caught up into his glory. The aim of Christ's ongoing priestly intercession is not for Christ to continue to participate in the life of suffering on earth, but for believers to participate in the life of God in heaven. Now, and th this is why I said why this might not be as good as you think it would be. This is why Jesus weeping in heaven would actually be quite bad news for us. Because that would, that would mean that there is sorrow in heaven. That would mean that Contra Eric Clapton, there are tears in heaven, right? That would mean that once we are resurrected and made like our Savior, we too would continue experiencing suffering and pain. And thankfully, that's not the case. That's not what scripture teaches. That's not what we're headed to, thankfully. Praise the Lord. Now, in his sermon entitled, Jesus Wept, the famous preacher Charles Spurgeon expounded on the many treasures of this two-word sentence, Jesus wept. And he was so good at this kind of thing. If you've ever read Spurgeon and his sermons, he could, he could easily write. He wrote 10, 10 sermons on this two-word sentence, Jesus wept. And they're all, they're all great. They're all wonderful. But as I, as I read this last week, um, well, actually, no, I'm remembering wrong. There are 10 sermons on the whole chapter. But I read this last week, his, his sermon on Jesus wept. And I have to say, as I was reading through it, I kind of expected Spurgeon at the end to bring out that last point saying that you can find comfort, O church, in knowing that our Savior weeps with us still. But Spurgeon doesn't. Because as gifted as he was at making the text very relevant to his reader or to his hearers, he was also a very skilled theologian. And so what he did is he actually married these two, um, these two skills, these two giftings, the, his theology and his, his ability to apply the text to his hearers in this statement and these statements, and I want to read them to you this morning. This is where we're going to leave off. Listen to what he says. He says, 
I believe we might have, good, we have it up there. Spurgeon says, let this comfort you too, that though he wept, he weeps no more. Herein is heaven begun below. Death hath no more dominion over him. In any sense or any degree, he has done with weeping. And then listen carefully. So shall it be with us before long. How I love that promise. Neither shall there be any more pain. Heaven is without a temple, for it is all devotion, and so it is without a hospital. Why? For it is all health and love. It will come to us before long, he says, for it has come to Jesus. The Lord God wiped away all tears from their eyes. He shall wipe all tears from their eyes. And we shall soon have no cause for sorrow and no possibility of grief. For as he is, such shall we be. And as he is perfectly blessed, we shall be beautified in him. Jesus wept, but his weeping is all over. Jesus wept, but his sorrow is now a thing of the past, and so shall ours be ere long. Where's the comfort in saying that Jesus weeps no more? Well, there it is. His sorrow is a thing of, a pa- of the past, and so shall ours be ere long, as Spurgeon says. Our Savior came down and became the man of sorrows, fulfilling all the requirements for him to become our great and merciful high priest so that our sorrow, like his, will not last forever. It will not last long. One day, like him, we too will be raised up out of all suffering, out of all sorrow, and to everlasting happiness and joy. So let's look to him. Heavenly Father God, we thank you for this good news of what your son has done for us. Lord, we thank you that Jesus wept is a great comfort to us knowing that he can sympathize with us. He can sympathize with our weakness. He knows what we went through. But we also thank you, Lord, that he weeps no more. And this is the glory that we long for and look forward to, to be made like him in every way, to be raised up in incorruptible bodies, to be saved ultimately and forever from all sorrow, all suffering, and all death. And we thank you that you have decided to accomplish this through your son and by the work of your spirit. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.